Thanks for listening to NapaBroadcasting.com. Napa Valley Radio, for the way we live now. Thanks for joining us here at NapaBroadcasting.com as we turn our attention now to issues of crime and punishment here in the Napa Valley, as it is my pleasure to be joined here by Napa County District Attorney Gary Lieberstein. Gary, thanks so much for coming in. It's been a while. Absolutely. Good afternoon, Jeff. It's good to have you back. As you, as you look at it, you and I were talking a little bit before we went on the air about, uh, and we'll talk more about some of the things coming up, some of the things your office is working on. Is it your sense that in Napa right now, crime is on the increase, decrease, about the same? What, what is your overall impression of that? I, mean, I, I think it's pretty much holding, <clears throat> holding true. I mean, I, I, you know, I like to say I've got 21 attorneys in my office, and, and you know, it's still a great place to raise a family and retire, but my, my attorneys are all busy, and it's, you know, it's the same, same variety of uh, activities. It's still... <clears throat> Um, you know, drug addiction is still alive and well. And unfortunately, right. you know, between alcohol abuse and drug abuse, you, that probably comprises about 70 to 80% of what we see directly or indirectly, both from, you know, people committing crimes to, to get money, uh, to afford their habits and, and the things that people do when they're under the influence uh, that they wouldn't do clean and sober. And, you know, and some people who hurt people when they get, you know, uh, drunk or high who, who, you know, then apologize when they sober up. I mean, it's right. a, you know, I often talk to eighth graders across our county uh, and I tell them if they could, you know, if they could solve that issue, they could put us out of business. But unfortunately, it's still alive and well. And, you know, there've been major changes in the criminal justice system, as we've probably talked about before, between, you know, realignment going on four years ago, which right. um, which basically shifted a lot of uh, formerly prison cases to the to the local governments. Um, it's, I know we'll probably talk a little bit about the jail situation, right. but that's one of the reasons why we, we really do need a new jail because um, a number of crimes where people formerly were eligible for state prison, they're no longer eligible. And this is things like drug dealers. You know, we can't send a drug dealer to prison courtesy of realignment uh, unless they're using a juvenile in the transactions so they can get you know, sentences of five or 10 years, and in some counties, as long as 20 or 30 years, local time. And local jails were not built to hold people longer than, than a year. I mean, they don't have the infrastructure for it. They don't have, you know, things that are required at the state and federal level, such as, you know, basic human needs and exercise and things like that. Um, they don't have the capacity. And, you know, we have a facility that's, you know, our quote, new jail is, is over 25 years old. And the you know, the old jail, which was heavily destroyed in the earthquake, was over 40 years old, and right. um, they're they're outdated. And uh, again, we can talk more about that. But but a lot of that has to do with these changes with a number of people who are doing local time who used to do prison time. Is realignment something that's here to stay? I mean, realignment happened partly out of the Fed saying to the state back in 2009, I guess it was that that the jails are that the prisons are overcrowded and you need to do something about it. That ultimately led to realignment. Is is that a permanent situation or is that something that will get readdressed at some point? Well, it's as permanent as the legislature and the governor and the people of California want because this was a a legislative uh, reaction to, as you noted, a very bad budget situation back to 08-09, prison overcrowding through the uh, you know three-judge panel that ordered that uh, the prisons be reduced from about 170,000 to under 120,000. So the legislation, it's all in the codes now and, and absent 
absent an, an initiative with a you know two thirds vote of the uh, of the state, um, it's not going to change. And I I certainly don't see any changes in the current administration. And there, you know, I'm not going to tell you it's it's all horrible, but there there are definitely aspects of it that um, we weren't set up infrastructure wise. It's mm-hmm. it's, it's also you know, it's a one-size-fits-all. So when you basically say, you know, drug dealers are, you know, they, they coined this phrase nonviolent, non-serious felony, um, which includes things like elder abuse. It includes driving under the influence, uh, causing injury, that these are these are uh, cases that you can't go to prison on anymore. I mean, you know, all, all levels of, of uh, commercial burglaries. I mean, there's, there's a lot of areas, um, you know, possession of a possession of a stolen firearm that used to be a a case that we could uh, charge as a misdemeanor or a felony. That so two things happen. Number one, it's no longer eligible for state prison. But secondly, under Prop Forty Seven, which just got passed by the voters a uh, year before last, that took a whole class of crimes and said they're now misdemeanors. So now all drug possession is a misdemeanor, regardless of the amount, unless we can show it's possession for sale. So someone could have a pound of heroin. And it's a misdemeanor, so we're seeing, and then all all theft cases under nine hundred and fifty dollars. So we have, you know, used to talk about all the Walmart thefts in American Canyon. You know, they're all sight and release now, and a lot of these people don't come back because, you know, the, I mean, I'm not trying to gain any business here, but you know, somebody fills up shopping carts full of groceries and it totals two hundred, three hundred, five hundred dollars. That's a misdemeanor that the officers can't arrest on. I mean, I guess the the broader question is that if we look at what's transpired since 2009 as a result of all of these things, Prop 36, Prop 47, all of these things that have happened, realignment. Is it your view and the view of of your colleagues, because you certainly have a sense of of where they are in all of this, that we are, are we less safe as a state than we were eight years ago? You know, I I don't, you know, some of my colleagues may, may go further than I would go. I I, I don't really want to put it in those terms per se. I think there are some people out on the streets who maybe shouldn't be. But I also, and I think the numbers are starting to add up across the state on property crimes where they're definitely on the increase because the word is out that the level of accountability is not what it used to be. And, you know, when somebody is committing these types of crimes, they're, they're less likely to be held in jail for very long. So there's there's more... Um, people are willing to take more of a chance. There, you know, I will tell you as far as realignment goes, um, there are a lot of positives. I mean, there, you know, there are, there are state dollars coming in locally that are being used for um, different different types of programs that are can you know evidence based programs mm-hmm. that can be very effective in rehabilitating. Um, one of the biggest problems with the earthquake and our now lacking facility in Napa County for for uh, housing inmates and particularly anybody other than the most violent, um, we've lost the ability to program in, in most of these situations. And these were uh, a lot of programs out of realignment where, you know, we're, we're dealing with some basic needs, whether it's, uh, you know, job placement, whether it's uh, literacy, whether it's a high school diploma, things that they were doing in jail when people were in custody that at the moment, you know, we don't have the structure to do it. And, and so I think, you know, I don't, I don't want you get me wrong in the sense that you know one size fits all for 30 years and and filling up our prisons wasn't necessarily the answer either there are people that need to be in prison there are people that um are are less um likely to reoffend in a violent way that we can uh, we can reach through programming i mean certainly sending someone to prison just to have them come out and go back to prison 
you know, hasn't worked for 30 years. So, I mean, there's, a, you know, the idea of people that are co- going to come back local mm-hmm. and, and dealing with them locally and getting them, you know, resources locally, that, that, that's a good concept. And, and we're getting, you know, we're getting a lot of state dollars uh, from the savings on state prison. I, I don't think it equals the cost, but I think, you know, realignment dollars are, are going in large part locally to programming, to um, to some of the health and human service activities, to probation, and right. unfortunately also to pay for you know more correctional officers because the population is is here that was in prison. And the other side though would have meant building more prisons in the state, which would have had a high cost. Obviously. Well, yeah, it's true. And the reason why we had a three judge panel is that our prisons were overcrowded. They weren't right. built for 170 thousand people, and you had people triple and quadruple bunked in gymnasiums and and you know using every available space and. Uh, you know, I don't know if you've talked about this before, but, you know, Napa County is contracting with Solano County. I think the contracts up to 130 of our prisoners are being held over there because we don't have the space for them now because the old jail is closed and they have to be transported back and forth. And, and really, it's only the most violent f- people or people who are, you know, pending current serious charges. Surprised they are, have the space in, in Solano County. <laughs> well, they actually, um, their timing was good. A few years ago, there was some state money um, under what used to be called AB 109 to, to build new facilities, and they they got in in time. So they actually just opened a very large facility within the last year. So they do have surplus space. And as I say, we don't have any. Um, and unfortunately, again, with a, with a very old jail, you know, um, criminal justice principles have changed a lot in terms of what they talk about evidence-based sentencing and Mm -hmm. evidence-based programs which is okay who do you give those resources to who are in custody who are on probation you know what population is that more likely to work with than not um you know if you have someone who's been in and out of the system for a long time Mm -hmm. um you can give them a lot of resources and they're probably going to react the same way but if you've got somebody who's you know just passing through or something they're much more likely to to benefit by these by these programs and and uh, you know Napa County's been kind of at the forefront of that for for many years. We've been working together as a criminal justice committee long before we were required to do so by by realignment. But it's you know the problem is so many of these things have been thrown at us so quickly between realignment and then Prop Forty Seven. Um, you know we're trying we're trying to catch up and. You know, the pendulum of justice has swung very far. You know, people maybe said it was too far to the right. Well, now it's, you know, it's swinging clear the other way where, where you know, we have less jail beds locally. We have less statewide. And the, and everybody talks about, you know, these, these low-level offenders who are in prison and jail. And, I you know, I can tell you there are very few low-level offenders left. Um, we've got every alternate program you can think of, whether it's uh, work release, whether it's uh, – you know, home detention, home arrest, um, um, you know, electronic monitoring, all this kind mm-hmm. of stuff. And we've got an outstanding probation department who assess every single person on their caseload uh, when they come into custody and they assess them for their level of dangerousness. And they've had really good success. I mean, I think they've, they're they saying maybe 15% recidivism on the folks that they're dealing with locally um, who used to be in prison. Now, you know, there's another population that don't show up. That's a different problem. Different problem. But, but, you know, there's a lot of different approaches to try to balance the system. But my fear is it's it's shifting too far to the left. And there's so much emphasis out of, out of you know, getting people out. And that plays up to the state level with, you know, we, we routinely have about 12 to 15 
well, they're called lifer hearings right now, which are mm-hmm. people who have been convicted of murder primarily um, 20, 30 years ago. And it you know, it used to be very few of these folks got out. And now it's like the default is they get out unless they, you know, they killed somebody in prison. And it's, um, you know, it's increasingly difficult. Um, you know, the, the legislature has added something called elder parole, which means if you're 60 years old and you've been in for at least 25 years that you're eligible for parole as long as you didn't get life without parole or death sentence. So, you know, we have sex offenders who, you know, got these sentences that people said, why are they getting 100 to life or 200 to life? And it's another way of saying, well, they committed so many acts, these are the sentences, but, you know, you're so dangerous, we can't risk you getting out. And we've we've told victims before and families that they never have to think about this person again. And they're eligible for parole at age 60 now if they've served 25 years. And whether they get it or not, it, you know, the impact on crime victims is horrendous because you've got to contact families who, you know, have to relive something from 20 or 30 years ago and and who were told this person would never be paroled. And now we have this new uh, initiative that, that uh, Governor Brown wants to run with his $23 million campaign fund. And it's designed at how more people can get out of prison sooner. And uh, well, let's talk sure. about that because you, not only you, but but all of your colleagues throughout the state have come out pretty soundly against the governor's proposal. Even those that are supporters of the governor, talk a little bit about what is it in that proposal that that you are all, all your you and your colleagues are so opposed to. Well, there, there's a there's a couple reasons, Jeff. In its in its the form that was initially filed and and which went through the the, the public hearing process, which is required, which is a 50 day process and 30 days for the public to respond, was a straightforward initiative that you know I don't happen to agree with, but it was uh, saying that we we would no longer be able to charge 16 and 17 year olds as adults uh, without the the court's permission. Uh, many years ago, the, the people of California passed an initiative that allowed for what's called direct filing, which, you know, you've got a 16 or 17-year-old who commits a very uh, serious crime with its murder, sexual assault, and it's pretty apparent that there's, you know, they're not likely to be rehabilitated in the juvenile system when they're going to turn 18 within a year or two years. And we had the ability to file that as an adult case. Um, the court still had the ability, once we went to a preliminary hearing, to say this is inappropriate and send it back to juvenile court. But it was, you know, going through the juvenile proceedings was was really a, uh, a, a large expense of time and, and energy on cases that were going to end up in the adult system regardless. The governor disagreed with that, and, and that was his initial initiative. So that was submitted. It went to the attorney general. And at the 11th hour, um, he basically amended it to add a whole nother, uh, a whole nother initiative that didn't go through the public process that would allow for many people to be paroled early, um, would change time credits that, uh, again, are, have been legislative for years and, and some, uh, some aspects by initiative. And the most critical part of it would say that anybody would be eligible for parole after they serve their their what's called their base term, or the, the minimum term, uh, without enhancements. So an enhancement could be gun use, it could be a knife use, it could be a gang enhancement, it could be an enhancement for causing serious injury in certain situations, uh, in monetary cases for you know over $100,000, a lot of different things, um, where someone might get like a 20-year prison sentence. But the base offense, even a sexual assault, might be eight years. So even though they were supposed to serve 20 years at 85%, 
under the governor's initiative, if it were to pass, they would be eligible for a lifer hearing, for a parole hearing at eight years. Um, the worst part about this from our perspective is it, it said it's only supposed to be for nonviolent offenders, but three strikes is an enhancement. You know, the 25 to life section that says you have to, if you've got two serious or violent prior convictions, your third offense, which now has to be a, a, a serious felony, that you're facing 25 years to life. And we have people that were sentenced to that in, in, in a number of cases in plea bargains where they were facing potentially 100 years. Mm-hmm. And, you know, our belief, whether intended or not, and I think it was intended despite the language, is that that person would be eligible for release after serving six years, four years, um, when they got 25 to life or more. And, and that, you know, that, that's an initiative that two-thirds of, uh, of California passed in 1994, and it's— Is that likely to happen, though, given the way the parole system works? Is it likely to happen that they'll get out? Yeah. Um, yeah, under the current parole system, because, uh, I mean, the, go- the governor's, you know, stated intent is, is he's— um, and he said a number of times, probably you know, in public settings as well as in private settings, uh, that uh, like I know he talked about when he was attorney general that that he's always regretted signing what's called the determinant sentencing law because it gave no incentive for people to try to get better in prison. So conceptually, you know, I understand that we used to have things like you know your sentence was one year to life, even for relatively minor crimes. So if someone went to prison got involved in gangs to survive, whatever, you know, got in trouble in prison, they could end up serving 10 or 20 years on a theft, you know, on a minimal theft case where if they, you know, if they went in and tried to get their GED and do other things, they could get out sooner. Well, to take that concept and determine in sentencing said, okay, you're going for two years and, and you're going to get out after a year with your time credits or something, regardless of what you do in prison. Um, so what he's proposing now is to say, well, I want to give incentive to people who you know, are in prison and want to better themselves, and it's across the board. And that's that's the problem that we have. It's it's almost like irregardless of what they're in for, you know, they have an opportunity to get out if they, if they program well. And, you know, there are people that should potentially have that opportunity, but there's a lot of other people that, you know, no matter how well they program, I mean, I've been to lifer hearings on, you know, people who kill their spouses, they're, they're usually – very well behaved in prison because they dealt with the problem that they perceived and they're in prison they're not married they don't have problems they never have any violations no but i mean but the reality is it's like they didn't suddenly become less dangerous and if they get out and get in another relationship you know they've done nothing in prison to try to you know um convince us otherwise and you know so you look at and look at their prison behavior well they've been a model prisoner well yeah they're a model murderer does that mean they should get out after five or ten years when they got a life sentence? I mean, it's it's just it, it's upside down, and it puts way too much. Um, it, it gives way too much power to the parole system, where mm-hmm. victims are basically cut out of the equation. That's that that's the what's, biggest part. What's the middle ground? How does this circle get squared in terms of, as you say, it may have gone too far in the other direction, but this goes too far in in a different direction. How how does this circle get squared? Well, I, I think in part it's it's the flaw in our initiative system because, you know, in order to pass an initiative, it cost a lot of money to get signatures. I've heard estimates now that they're talking as high as $6 a signature to qualify this, and, and I think they need uh, 
five or six hundred thousand yeah, signatures, and, yeah. and, and the governor is <laughs> is you know willing to spend a large part of his campaign fund to do that. When people are spending that kind of money, and you know generally people have that kind of money to spend, you know they 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 want to get everything they want to get. And the problem with an initiative is once it's passed, it can only be changed by two thirds two-thirds of the of, of the citizenry at a future time, or like Prop 47, which, as I said, made all drug possession misdemeanor, made a lot of, you know, uh, any thefts under $950 a misdemeanor. People afterwards said, well, why didn't you tell us about this? Well, there were people like myself and others tried to, but we didn't have the kind of money the proponents had, and the initiative they passed said it can only be changed by two-thirds vote of the legislature and two-thirds votes of the people which is, is not likely to happen. So when you use the initiative process to try to legislate, it, it, it's very flawed. And so, you know, maybe you do it in a legislative setting um, where there's, there's true public hearings. Um, but I just think people get greedy when they get into initiatives. Mm-hmm. And there's a lot of what, what we would call unintended consequences where, you know, maybe, maybe they, they have the, the right mindset when they're going in but the way they write the language once the courts start interpreting other people it, it opens up all these loopholes and trap right. doors and it's just harder to tweak the process so to speak well, well it, it is when you just adjust it as as circumstances warrant yeah and when you ask are we less safe i think if if you totally turn back three strikes if you totally you know the way the laws keep changing you know they're my fear is yeah things things are going to happen and and you are going to start seeing you know, cases where people who shouldn't be on the streets are on the streets. And, you know, I'm not saying it's epidemic, but, but some people are going to get hurt who shouldn't get hurt. And, and you know, victims of crime in the past and future victims are the ones who suffer. I mean, they're, you know, we passed a, an initiative for Victims' Bill of Rights called Marcy's Law. Part of it included truth and sentencing. It said people shall serve the sentence that they're, that they're given. Well, it was a misnomer from the beginning because, you know, two years means one year with 50% time credits and even violent felonies had had uh, you had to do 85% time not 100 and part of what the governor wants to do is is also reduce time credits on certain offenses so you know that was an initiative and victims are getting the short end of that and you know we we all know people who have for you know in one reason or another have gotten involved in the system so i i don't you know, I don't, I don't have the panacea answer, and and then of course we've got the, you know, another huge elephant in the room, and that's you know mental health and mental illness, right. and and our system is totally upside down in that area, and we're, you know, we're trying to do things locally that we can, but uh, you know when you've got a system where, you know, a lot of people the first time they get attention for mental health issues is when they've committed Wind a crime, up in jail, and prison. hurt somebody, you know, we're we're doing it all wrong, right. One of the other initiatives that are going to be uh, happening in some form, it's very unclear what initiative and how and, and how it's all going to play out, is uh, the medical marijuana issue, legalization of marijuana, yeah, recreational it's, it's, Yeah, it's going far beyond medical marijuana. Right. I mean, we already have now, you know, the state's appointed a, a medical marijuana czar, right. and, you know, they passed uh, several bills last year to try to um, uh, clarify medical marijuana laws, but you can throw that all out the window if— if a legalization passes. And there's, I, I heard something like 11 or 13 initiatives that we're circling, but our guests, you know, our it's best. It's going to come down to one or yeah, two. At yeah, the end of and the, the people that have the money to support it are going to are going to coalesce around one. And, you know, I know a lot of people have a lot of 
you know, strong thoughts about it. I, I can tell you as far as medical marijuana, um, we've never prosecuted somebody who's using marijuana or even growing their own marijuana for their own use who have glaucoma issues or cancer or AIDS or anything like that. But, you know, we've had people making a farce out of medical marijuana for years. I mean, one of the premises is it's not supposed to be for profit and people want to get into it because there's money to be made. And, and you know, if you fully legalize uh, I think the biggest problem Colorado's had, and I've got colleagues in Colorado that you know I, I see on, on a regular basis uh, at the national DAs, is, is the whole area around edibles. And mm-hmm. you know, if you fully legalize, and that you know, and that involves edible marijuana as well, the problem is that you don't know what you're what you're putting in your body, and it's not the marijuana of your generation, my generation, when we were in college. I mean, this is like one one puff, the THC content is so high. I mean, one one puff and you could be, you know, already hallucinating practically. And the problem with edibles is someone takes a bite of a brownie and they don't, you know, people want instant gratification. They don't feel something for five <laughs> or 10 minutes, so they eat the whole thing. And then suddenly they're bouncing off the walls and it's, it's very hard to regulate. It's not, you know, medical marijuana. You know, what other medicine, and I use that word, you know, the... I, I mean, I'm not doubting that there are medical aspects. I mean, that there are there are people who who get relief from it who are very ill. But the initiatives that are coming forth, including the lieutenant governors, really are not about medical. No, this is full legalization. legalization. But I'm saying, even taking medical marijuana, where else can you get medicine from a doctor, at least an advisement that gives you no uh, no idea about dosages, gives you no idea about what the content is. You know, it's just uh, you know, take as much as you need. And, and, of course, if you fully legalize, you go way beyond that. And, you know, one of the biggest things that we look at is driving under the influence. You know, driving under the influence of marijuana is very hard to regulate. And the reason is, you know, with, with alcohol, there is a standard that most all experts agree at 0.08 right. uh, al- alcohol in your system that, that everyone's impaired, no matter whether you have a tolerance, whether, you know, you can stand up straight. Well, there's no similar test that that's been refined yet for marijuana where, all right, if you have X content in your body, you're likely under the influence. And, you know, people may make jokes about, oh, well, you know, people will be sitting at a stoplight for two minutes because they'll be so laid back. But it's, it, it's, you know, it's not Cheech and Chong anymore. I mean, like I said, this stuff is so potent that there, you know, there are people who will be using who shouldn't be. And then you get into workplace situations and stuff. So I'm, you know, I'm, you know, I am not a proponent of, of, legalized marijuana i i you know i think that there is a place for medical marijuana if it's not abused but i you know i i um i think it needs to be very tightly regulated and i haven't seen you know locally um you know we still don't have a dispensary and i i people say they can't get their medicine i mean you can order on the internet there's dispensaries from out of town that deliver so it's not you know we're not depriving uh you know people uh, people who are laying around sick from from getting it, and plus the fact law enforcement's not going to bother those people. That's not, where, you know, nobody's really concerned about that. It's it's, you know, it's the people selling for profit, people getting it to kids. It's it's the people that aren't following the law that that when we get involved. Talk about some of the other things that uh, your office is working on right now. I mean, as you said, everybody's very busy. There's no sure. shortage of uh, of work for the office, but there are a couple of uh, of larger cases that are around that people have read about and and know about. Well, as as you're aware, though, you know, there's one of them. There's a there's a gag order for good reason, right. so that's that we can't talk about 
that particular case. I mean, we have we just looked uh, in the last few months. I think we have eight eight pending homicide cases in our office. Um, have two, you ever had that many at one time? Um, we've had more. Mm-hmm. I mean, two of them are, are vehicular related, mm-hmm. and we've had times when you know we've had uh, uh, vehicular manslaughters where we've had you know ten or fifteen, and uh, you know a lot of it's we have rural roads. Um, you know, a lot of two lane roads, a lot of, you know, and, and it's not all alcohol related. I mean, if it's the ones I'm talking about are where we've actually charged, uh, charged murder where someone was, you know, was under the influence, but you know, that can be everything from a true accident to a, to a misdemeanor, you know, somebody falls asleep and, and drifts off the road and kills somebody. Um, you know, they didn't intend to, but there's still negligence, you know, onto somebody's driving recklessly and hurts someone to where someone's got you know, prior driving and the influence uh, convictions, and they know the dangers and they don't care and they do it anyway, and that's what we call implied malice. So we have cases like that, but you know, we're still we're still fortunately low on the uh, on the scale of uh, you know a community or a county our size. I mean, I think we you know have maybe one to three homicides a year at the most. Some years zero, and you know some of these cases have been. You know, take longer than others to go through the system. So some of these have been around for. A few we had that years. one week that was pretty crazy. Yeah, and if you, but that, if you remember, yeah. there was only yeah. most of those were found to be non-homicidal, right. and then of course we had the one where it was homicidal, but then the, the you know the the suspect killed himself. Right. But um, you know, probably the biggest project that's not case related directly, but we're working very closely in collaboration with a number of other groups. Uh, to create a family justice center in Napa County. And this is something that's um, been proven across the country to to really assist um, victims of domestic violence, of sexual assault, stalking, um, human trafficking, and then even expanding into incorporating in your child advocacy center, our courage center, and victims of elder abuse. And the concept is having, you know, a one-stop location. So right now somebody somebody is victimized or goes whether they're going to report a crime or they're going for help to Napa Emergency Women's Shelter, and they also have alcohol or drug issues, or they they they're homeless, or they they have um, you know mental health issues or something, and somebody has to say, oh, well, if you want help for this, you can go over here, and they're located about a mile down the road over here, and then and if you want to go to the police department, they're over here, and then the mm-hmm. DA's over there, and and the idea is to have all these different agencies co-located in one one spot so that somebody comes in, they're met by what, what we call in the business a navigator who initially assesses what the problem is. You know, law enforcement is on site. Napa Police Department will have uh, have an officer on site. Um, Napa Emergency Women's Shelter is a, is, is a key um, uh, key partner, and they'll have somebody on site. There'll be a victim advocate on site, uh, you know, prosecutor on site, the mental health organizations will be on site. Uh, one of the things that's really kind of exciting is our, our current director of Napa County uh, Health and Human Services, uh, Howard Howard um, Himes, is a very large proponent that we shouldn't have these silos of county and, and nonprofit and, and private that we all need to work together. And that's what this, so this is a coalition between government, nonprofit, um, and we've We've been meeting for about a year to, uh, you know, kind of form the nucleus on this. A bunch of us went to a, a state training that's offered by a national organization called the uh, Alliance for Hope out of San Diego. And just recently, although I still can't confirm who the funder is, but we recently had a local funder that um, is is um, 
granting uh, funds upwards of close to $40,000 for a feasibility study where we bring the experts in and they'll spend a couple days in the community in late April, you know, meeting with a lot of the major stakeholders and, you know, really looking toward, okay, we know what the concept is, Mm -hmm. but, but what's best suited to Napa County? I mean, you know, when we have issues of, like we said, about homelessness, you've got all the mental health issues. It's, you know, how can we design this so it's unique for our community to, to increase the health and safety of our community? And, and uh, then they'll come back in, uh, in midsummer and we'll have an opening night where the you know, public will be invited, community leaders, and we'll really talk about what it is that we're, um, that we're planning. And then the next two days will be intense strategic planning session with, you know, with the, uh, you know, with, with our um, consultants. And then they'll kind of take everything they learn and they'll package it into, uh, um, you know, sort of a blueprint of what they think we're looking for and what size we need. And we also just recently, uh, just yesterday, submitted a, a federal grant through the um, Office of Violence Against Women, which, if we're successful, would, would raise uh, $450,000 over three years um, of federal funds. So it's, you know, it's a... I think it's a very exciting um, uh, advancement for our community. It, you know, it's not going to happen overnight, but as I said, we've been a year in the planning, and if all goes well, we may be able to open in a temporary location in the next 12 to 18 months, and it's uh, you know proven very successful in another uh, in a number of other communities because you know anybody who's in those situations, it, it, you know, it's a very stressful, you know. Um, you know, sometimes life-threatening, and the last thing they they have the time or even ability to do is to chase all around town to get help. And if we can bring that help to them, um, I think we have a much better chance of of letting them heal. And it's not just about prosecution. If someone goes, "Oh, well, you're just trying to, you know, make a better prosecution," it's like, well, that can happen. But it's really talking about prevention and and how we can assist folks in in not just you know living but surviving and. You know whether they want to seek prosecution or not. That's not the point. It's getting them getting them the help that they need when they need it. Before we uh, wrap up, I want to talk about another ev- event that you're involved in for family services that uh, is is very close to you. And talk a little bit about that. Sure, um, it's coming up very quickly. Actually, on Saturday night, uh, March twelfth, it's called the World of Wine. Um, this is ben- benefiting Mentis, which is. Um, uh, family service of Napa Valley f- for over 60 years, uh, just rebranded in the last year. They were, you know, unfortunately a very, very well-kept secret that no one wants to be a secret because um, it's a mental health uh, community nonprofit that has services available for pretty much cradle to grave. I mean, they do they do peer support for, um, you know, peers of, of folks going through mental health issues. They have counseling. They have a referral service. Um, they have, I think, 40 or 50 uh you know, psychologists, psychiatrists on on staff, and it's um, you know, it's a it's a wonderful resource that, you know, even for myself, I I, I wish I had known about when before we lost our son to the mental illness and suicide because there were there were some resources there that we didn't know about, and I'm in the system, and so I think that there, it, it's it's a wonderful organization. I mean, it's one of many. I mean, you've got organizations like Aldea and others in the community, but. Um, this particular organization I've been very involved with, and uh, um, World of Wine is an event where, you know, like a few others we have in the Valley, but we're getting a lot of um, some really good wine together, some some excellent uh, 
uh, food bites to accompany it and uh, you know silent auction to, to benefit the cause it starts at 5 p.m on uh, again on the on the 12th and if you just go to I think it's mentis.com or or Google world of wine you can find more information uh, on tickets but um, I've been asked along with my wife Patty to be uh, honorary co-chairs along with Brandon Staglin who um, who's uh, family, Garen and Sherry Staglin, raise millions of dollars right. every year for mental health research. And, and Brandon's very open about the fact that he, he suffers from schizophrenia, but he's fortunately been able to get uh, good treatment and good medication. And so it's, you know, it's a very exciting event to, to benefit the community. And, you know, Opus One is a, you know, a winery that doesn't hold... a good hold, venue. Yeah, they don't hold many community <laughs> events. So I just strongly urge people, if they're interested, to check that out or they're welcome to contact me directly and we'll I put can, a link up too on, on, oh that'd be great so. that'd be great so it's you know like i said a lot of exciting things going on things we're talking about things we can't be talking about uh you know we've got uh you know a number of serious cases coming up for trial and you know just a quick shout out to all those folks in fact i just got a jury summons for two weeks from now <laughs> um i you know, I'll I'll be there, and you know, I've been in the box before where a judge says, "And what do you do for a living, sir?" And <laughs> well, maybe we shouldn't have you as a juror in a case that your name is on. But you know, I just want to say that you know we can't do our job and and help keep the community safe and hold people accountable without good citizens who are you know respond to their jury summons and are and are willing to do their you know public service because it's it's. You know our system of democracy falls apart without it, and it's not an it's not an easy job. But in thirty years of prosecutor, I've always been amazed that most all the time, twelve strangers uh, find consensus and are able to reach a decision. You know, regardless of whether it's finding someone guilty or not guilty, and and be willing to take the time to do that. And as I said, our our system falls apart without without folks doing that so thank you to all and i'll probably see some of you in jury duty in a couple of weeks <laughs> well thanks and thanks for coming in napa county district attorney gary lieberstein thank you so much absolutely jeff always a pleasure thanks for listening to napa com. napa valley radio for the way we live now